Jesse Sandal has spent most of his adult life growing trees. As the owner of Liberty Tree Nursery in Beaverdam, New Brunswick, Jesse spends every day tending to a unique mix of hardwood trees that are native to the Wabanaki Forest. Welcome to Below the Canopy, a podcast brought to you by Community Forests International. I'm your host, Megan DeGraff. In this episode, Jesse explains what inspired him to open Liberty Tree Nursery, his process for collecting seed from native trees, and the special tree species that he is hoping to restore in New Brunswick. Hi, Jesse. Hello. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. You clearly have a really deep appreciation for and a curiosity about the natural world. Can you tell us a little bit more about what sparked that interest? I think it was just growing up with my family, always being outside, doing stuff in the woods with my brother, just kind of like wandering around, seeing if we can get lost and then trying to find our way back home or going like mushroom hunting with my grandfather and stuff like that. That's what really got me into it, I think. And, you know, when I was a kid, I always liked growing plants. I was the kid that wanted that little tabletop greenhouse kit in the spring just so I could grow herbs and stuff. Yeah, it just kind of led into wanting to go into forestry. And then like for the millennials, that generation, seeing Fred Penner crawl through that log also sparked something, even though that's not what you do in forestry at all. But I think it kind of laid a seed in my head and got me into forestry. If only we also had talking birds hanging over our heads. <laughs> no. <having> us words. <laughs> yeah, I still haven't crawled through a log. Yeah, I think you might have to go out west to experience yeah. that. I don't know yeah. if you're going to get it here. It's going to be a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that that love of growing things and that interest in the natural world, when did that turn into growing trees? I went to the Maritime College of Forest Technology right out of high school. And then I had a summer job after that first year working at the Provincial Tree Nursery in Island View. New Brunswick tree nursery. And so that's when I really started growing trees as a summer student. And then after that, I ended up working for them full time for a couple of years and then went to UNB to get a degree in forestry. And then I went out west to British Columbia and worked at a big tree nursery out there. So that's kind of, it just sort of morphed into that, just bigger and bigger scales. So you established your own nursery, Liberty Tree Nursery in 2019. What's behind that name? The name, yeah, it's kind of a personal thing. You know, what would I name a nursery? If I was doing exactly what I wanted to do, I definitely feel like I'm free when I'm collecting seeds or growing trees or doing anything on my property. So that's why I named it Liberty. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, makes a lot of sense. It sounds, I know from our previous conversations that you take a lot of enjoyment and pride out of doing your own thing and, yeah. and being your own boss. And it really fits that you've chosen that name because it describes your life pretty well. Yeah, for sure. It's pretty cool to just have complete control over what I'm doing at the nursery. Just like, oh, I want to do this. Or I'll just go do it. You know. What inspired you to start your own nursery or to start this nursery the way you've got it set up? We moved to this property in 2016 after we moved home to New Brunswick and it's got five acres. And I started just like growing trees for the property. I wanted to put more red oaks in because there, there weren't very many. And then obviously I've always had a love for for other hardwood species. So I just started growing a bunch. And then I grew too many. You don't always have all the time you want to plant trees on your property. So then people started buying them from me and finding me saying, oh, you have a few hundred extra oaks. Can I buy them from you? And then the next year I collected more and then more and more. The nursery is partially like an outlet for a seed collecting addiction. So <laughs> it just kind of turned into a business and people just kept coming to me. And I was like, all right, well, I need a name now. And I guess this is something I can actually do for a living now. It's crazy. <laughs> So it just kind of like morphed into a business. I'm still a little bit surprised. Yeah, I was going to say, it seems like you, you're a little bit shocked still. Yeah.
maybe a couple specific questions about the nursery itself. What square footage are you growing on and how many trees are you growing now? The area of the nursery isn't really even that big. Between the beds and the greenhouse and like the benches where the potted trees are, it's like a third of an acre. And then if I were to include the area where some stock trees and plants are, it might be like half an acre. Wow. And that's definitely going to grow. But on that area in in about a third of an acre, I've got about just under 15,000 trees and they're in different states. So the bulk of them are started this year in air pruning beds. They just started in May and then maybe like another two or 3,000 are potted up from last year. So they're slightly bigger trees. Wow. All of that on one third of an acre. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it's a lot of trees in a small area. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So let's maybe talk a little bit about specifically the tree species. Your nursery specializes in a few different species of trees and plants. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Yep. So I tend to focus pretty exclusively on hardwoods, deciduous trees, mostly natives, but I also grow some non-natives too, like nut trees, like black walnuts and some hazelnuts and stuff that aren't native, just things that are useful in people's yards or permaculture projects, food forests and stuff like that. But mainly the bulk of it is is native hardwoods. I kind of got into it because they are my favorite tree species to grow. Most of the ones that I grow are projected to do well under climate change scenarios. And there's not a lot of people growing them. A lot of the conifers, there's nurseries out there like the Provincial Tree Nursery and other nurseries in the Maritimes. They're doing it and they're doing it at a big scale and they're doing it well. So It was kind of nice that the little niche in the market that I could occupy was the trees that I actually like growing the most anyways. That's that's a happy confluence, I think. (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot of oaks, maples, birch, like yellow birch, and then some less common things like black cherry, a butternut. That's another native species that I grow. And then for the non-natives, like black walnut and some of the hazelnuts and American chestnut. Can you tell us how many different tree species you are growing in total? So it's 38 species, which I was a little surprised when I did the count, but it's 38. But I would say the top 10 of them that I grow the most of occupy, you know, maybe like 95% of the nursery. And then the rest are just like little small batches here and there. I think you often, from our previous conversations, you do quite a lot of trialing. Like you, you'll pick up some seed from something and you'll give it a test and you'll try it for a year or two. And you're always refining your process too, to figure out what works for one species which may not work for another species. So you're always trying to figure out the best way to grow. Yeah. And I assume you've got a few of those species kind of always in the mix. You've always got a test area. Yeah. I want to make sure before, like if somebody asks me for a specific species, I want to at least have the experience of growing it once or twice because every step you're going to fail when you try things for the first time most often. So you don't want to get into like deals with people and not be able to actually provide the trees. So I always try to get a little bit ahead of things before they ask for them that I can actually provide it and get each of those steps down, you know, because there's like germination, the seed storage germination, just growing them out effectively and optimally, and then overwintering and stuff. So yeah, try to get ahead of it. So what motivates you to grow these species in particular? It's mainly that there's not a lot of them being grown in the Maritimes, these hardwood species, these native hardwoods. So, you know, adding biodiversity is a big part of it. Also, they tend to be my favorite species anyways. So that's kind of nice that there's a confluence of people wanting things and me liking growing them. And then there's the climate change aspect of it too. We don't really know exactly what's going to happen, but the projections seem to be that a lot of these hardwoods with more Southern affinities like uh, red oak and sugar maple 
are going to do well under climate change, or at least better than some of the more boreal species like black spruce and balsam fir. So that's why I like growing them. I'm guessing that there are some challenges around growing these species. Can you tell us a few of those? What are some of the big barriers that you've bumped into with regards to growing these species? The biggest thing is, and I think anybody who's into gardening or growing plants would find that each species needs its own thing to grow optimally. So if you treat every species the same, it's not going to be very good unless you've got a species that just can handle anything. The challenge is finding out what they actually like. Some need shade in their first few years and like how much shade do you give them? You can, obviously, you don't want to grow them in the dark, but you also don't want to fry them out in the sun. So the main challenge is just finding out what they like and then also being able to identify problems with them when they're under stress. It manifests itself in different ways and it can look like insect damage or it can look like heat stress or lack of moisture or whatever. And just finding that out for each species is it's challenging, but it's also really fun because once you crack it, then you know what you're doing the next year and it just becomes second nature. You mentioned earlier that after school, you worked at some larger nurseries, both here in New Brunswick and also out west. Can you tell us a little bit about those experiences and tell us also how you've been able to apply some of that in your own nursery? Working at the larger nurseries, I really did enjoy the experience at them. And just learning from, I guess, other growers who had been doing it for decades at both nurseries, really, there was a a lot of people that I met that they just kind of rub off on you. And specifically with how that transfers to my nursery, just picking things up, like, you know, how you set up a greenhouse, how irrigation lines get put together and fixed, where the filters go, monitoring things like water pH, things that you might not be thinking about if you hadn't worked at a nursery and how important they might be for tree growth. I think I picked up a lot of that stuff there. And then when I was working at PRT, specifically out in British Columbia, that that was the nursery I was working at. Uh, they've got like, I don't know how many locations, but maybe like a dozen across the United States and Canada. And uh, they have it down so good. And the nursery that I was working at, I think grew like 25 million seedlings a year. So just seeing how things are done at at a massive scale and how efficiently they do it, it is just a great experience. Obviously, I grow a lot fewer trees at my nursery and it's different species, but some of that scale stuff rubbed off on me, how to do it at scale or how to do it efficiently, even if it's at a smaller scale in my nursery. That didn't even really occur to me that there would be all manner of, not small, but really important operational considerations that could actually be scaled from a really large nursery to a small one and still maintain that efficiency. That's really interesting. I never, I didn't really think of that too much, but I can see how those would be really valuable in in setting up your own nursery. Yeah, for sure. So like if somebody from a tree nursery visited my nursery, they might, they might see a lot of things like, oh yeah, that's the way we do it too. Like with our irrigation lines or whatever, but I still do a lot of hand watering with a hose. So it's not all, (laughs) it's not all super efficient. I still have more irrigation equipment to put in and ways to make it better. Yeah, you couldn't hope to get it all right in the first, you know, no. two or three years. That, that'd be asking a lot. And it's tough with potted trees too. They move around and you got to space them out throughout the year differently because the trees grow and stuff. So you, you need lines and, and things that kind of move around. There must be a lot of daily handling. Yes. You know, you must have to just move things from one place to the other all the time. Yeah, I've become <laughs> very good at like picking up three pots at a time in both hands and just moving things around. Right.
I'd like to talk to you a little bit about seed collection next, because I know you mentioned having a seed collecting addiction earlier. You take a lot of pride in collecting your own seeds. Can you tell us a little bit about your process for sourcing the seeds for these different species? For the native species, I get all of my seed locally. So within the Maritimes for sure, but generally it's all from my part of New Brunswick, just because that's where I live and, and that's where it's easiest to get them from, unless somebody has a specific need to get seeds from somewhere else, which hasn't come up yet. So yeah, sourcing seeds, it it's mainly, it's a lot of watching what's going on throughout the entire year. So, you know, paying attention to how the seed year is for a particular species and seeing how the seeds are coming along and making sure that I don't miss out on the collection window, because sometimes it's uh, very narrow or like wildlife pressure is higher in certain years. That's the main thing. A lot of walking around and then just making sure on private land that I have permission to collect, which it's becoming easier and easier because people are reaching out to me now and saying, hey, I've got a bunch of sugar maple. Why don't you come collect or things like that? So a lot of driving and watching. Let's pick on one species for a second. Can you give us an example or the process involved for collecting the seed for one particular species? Yeah. So I think the best one to start on would be red oak because it's fairly common in eastern Canada, urban areas, and in natural environment. And it's somewhat straightforward. So for red oak, you'll be able to watch the acorns developing over the course of an entire summer. And once you're getting to around early September, the acorns are going to be almost full size and they're still green. And they're going to be ready to collect when the acorns start turning brown. And ideally, they would be falling off the tree. That's kind of what you want, you know, because that's the, the natural maturity of an acorn. But sometimes the wildlife pressure is so high that you have to collect slightly early. With a species like red oak, you can't collect too early. So the main, the main thing to look for is if you pull that acorn off the tree with the cap attached, if the cap comes off with relative ease, you don't have to rip it off or really use a lot of grip strength to take it off. That means it's, it's pretty much ready. Whereas if you pull the acorn cap off and it rips the top of the acorn off, then that's way too early. So you have a bit of leeway there. Mainly it's just that if the acorn comes off from the cap, then it's ready to go. Do you, you must have to, or do you climb a lot of trees? <laughs> I have a ladder. <laughs> I have multiple ladders. I don't really get too much higher than 14 or 15 feet off the ground. So I don't, I don't really climb a lot of trees, which means that you have to visit a lot of trees because you can only get the bottom, you know, five or 10% of some of the big red oaks. And in other cases, if it's a good seed year, you can actually get them off the ground. I think, what was it, 2020 was a really good year for red oak across all of eastern North America. The wildlife, there was just so many acorns on the ground that it didn't matter. I could just get them off the ground. And I heard that it was the same even as far south as New York State. So it's kind of interesting how those kind of cycles can affect an entire continent. And so after collecting the seed, you want to do something that's called the float test, which is just simply like once the acorn cap is off the acorns, put them in a bucket and fill it with water and only keep the ones that sink because the ones that float either haven't developed fully and there's like an air pocket in there, something's wrong with the seed, or there's probably worms or something in the, the acorn. So you just want to get rid of those. And that actually, that rule actually carries forward for a lot of different seeds like, like walnuts, butternuts, all the species of oaks pretty much any nut tree you want to do the float the float test on it it sounds like seed collecting is something that everyone can do is that is that true yeah totally yeah you really just have to be paying attention to what's going on and always be looking up or down or you know just seeing what's going on with any individual tree just be there at the right time so it's a good reason to get outside 
because you're always just waiting for like a windy day or for a little bit more hot weather. So that kind of makes it a lot of fun. I'm sure there must be some challenges that you face, though, when you're sourcing seeds or trying to grow from seed. Can you tell us a couple of those challenges? The sourcing challenge is that a lot of tree species, it's cyclical and it's not every year. So something like butternut in New Brunswick, a really good example is that it's really every two years, like you'll be able to get seed every two years. So this isn't a good year, but last year was great. I'm expecting probably next year will be good again. And then every three to five years, you'll actually get like a really good bumper crop where there's a lot of them. So that that can be challenging if you're trying to like grow the same thing every year, but you can't get seed every year in your area. That can be challenging. And then in years where there isn't a lot of seed, the wildlife pressure tends to be a lot higher. So you're really battling getting there before the squirrels. And it's easy to miss certain species in years like that. I'd like to talk about bur oak conservation. Not to preempt anything, but are bur oaks your favorite tree to grow? Bur oaks are my favorite tree to grow. Can you tell us a little bit more about what's so special about bur oak? And where, where do they grow? Tell us a little bit about their range here. In New Brunswick specifically, they have a very small range. Which it's pretty much limited to the lower St. John River Valley. And our particular population of bur oak in New Brunswick is very separated from the main range, which is from, I think, Saskatchewan down to Texas and over across to New York State, the western New York State, something like that. And then really there's, there's just a couple little disjunct pockets of, of the population. So there's one here in New Brunswick and there's one in central Maine. And then I think a few like Massachusetts and New Hampshire, but really these are just like tiny little pockets of bur oak. But the big range is really in central North America. We're at the far northeastern end of the range. And I think that's very special because, you know, if you just go over to like Cambridge Narrows, somewhere over there in New Brunswick, that's going to be somewhere over there is the most far northeastern natural Baroque in North America. That's really cool to me. Can you tell us a little bit more about Baroque as a tree? Because I suspect a number of people who will listen to this podcast maybe aren't familiar with, with Baroques. The scientific name for Baroque is Quercus macrocarpa, which means an oak with big fruits. Ironically, in New Brunswick, it doesn't actually really have big acorns. When you get down into like Missouri and Kansas, you tend to find ones that are just massive, the biggest acorns in North America. But in New Brunswick, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's because of the climate, they just don't get as big. So that's not the best description of, of bur oak in New Brunswick. So bur oaks are in the white oak group. Red oaks in, in Eastern North America, those are in the red oak group. White oaks are in the white oak group. There's some slight differences between them. Bur oak can grow their acorns in one year where red oaks take two years to fully develop an acorn. As a tree, it lives a long time. So some of the, the big trees we have in New Brunswick are two, 300 years old. I don't know exactly how old they are, but they're some of the biggest trees in the province if you can get out and see them. And they're just sturdy. They look kind of like haunted house trees just because they're so massive and they've been growing so long. Great habitat for wildlife and they uh, provide a lot of food for like blue jays, squirrels, deer. Just really a special tree in the province. Whenever I see one, I often think, I mean, you said a haunted house tree. They make me think of a Halloween sort of spooktacular yeah. series, a tree that you would see. Because they're very scrunchy looking, like yeah. the branches are fine. They're very finely branched. They're kind of twisted looking in the branching and they look spooky all the time. Yeah, they yeah. look kind of scary. D deeply furrowed bark yeah. and like 
quirky twigs and they're gnarly. Yeah, they're really neat looking. Do you know why it's so rare in New Brunswick today? Why is it that we have a population here and this is kind of it for New Brunswick or for many kilometers? I'm not sure why it's so separated. There's a pretty good theory that First Nations people and their ancestors brought them here along the trading routes because it does line up pretty well with those historic routes, like the travel routes, you know, because the, the next population is in Maine where, where people would have stopped over when they were traveling. The reason why it's so rare is just because they all got cut down because Baroques tend to like living in New Brunswick anyways, in the floodplains and in floodplain adjacent areas, exactly where people developed farms when Europeans came, The first starting with the Acadians and then the Loyalists after that. All those areas in the lower St. John River Valley got turned into farmland. And then a lot of them were cut down for firewood. And they also had a lot of uses as barrel staves and shipbuilding material and stuff like that. So a lot of them got cut down. And they, it's not really a species that springs back from cutting in the same way that maybe like a silver maple would, like spreading back from the stumps. So yeah, they kind of took a beating over the last 300 years. But the good news in that is there is good news is that there isn't a particular disease that's affecting Baroque. Like some of the other species, there's a lot of challenges like with butternut. So if we just grow enough trees, put them in the right places and protect them until they're big enough to start producing more seed, you can kind of let the the blue jays take over at a certain point and we might have a better population that can kind of sustain itself. That is good news. Yeah. So on that note, how many bur oaks would you say you have grown and distributed? So I've probably gotten about 3,000 of them out in the last few years. And then I've got another 3,000 started this spring and another 2,000 that are ready to go next spring. So 3,000 out the door and another 5,000 getting ready to go. You're basically responsible for doubling the population of Bur Oaks in New Brunswick then. I wouldn't take too much credit for it. It's not just me. It's the people <laughs> that doing are- your part. The people that are planting them and the people that are getting interested in it, for sure. But it's nice to see that people are getting excited about it. And also nice to see, you know, I've met landowners now that I've been kind of traveling around the province, just meeting people who are like really proud of the trees that they have and they want to protect them. That's been really cool because not, not everybody knows what is on their property. Getting people aware of what they have and how special it is really, it helps because they just start taking care of it. Let's let's call this a public service announcement then. Folks, if you live in the lower Willistook or St. John River Valley and you have what looks to be some sort of haunted house looking <laughs> hardwood tree on your property, please don't cut it down. Yes. If the leaves look kind of <laughs> blobby and not pointy at the ends, then there's a good chance it's bur oak and uh, you got something special. So hang on to it. So don't do it. Yeah, don't <laughs> yeah. do it. Can you tell us what inspires you the most from your work growing the special collection of native hardwood trees? I think it's a mix of things. First off, a lot of these species are long-lived and just the idea that a lot of them can outlive, obviously going to outlive me, but you know, people in the future, wildlife in the future will get to benefit from the trees that I'm growing is very inspiring. Adding biodiversity to a place that otherwise might not have it is really inspiring. I get a lot of meaning from that. What's next for Liberty Tree Nursery? What's your long-term vision? In the immediate future, a new greenhouse is getting put up this fall. So a new 60-foot greenhouse. So that's going to expand how much I can grow quite significantly. And then in the long term, I just want to be able to grow more trees, more native trees, more things that people want, and maybe get into 
some like really less common native species that aren't typically grown in nurseries. I'm thinking like some of the understory plants and stuff like for, for restoration projects because restoration is becoming very big and it's getting a bit more funding and people are getting very excited about it. So getting into some of those types of projects where people really want to you know, make a diverse restoration project, getting into that kind of thing would be very cool. Awesome. That sounds great. Given your interest in growing trees and at least in part with an eye towards mitigating and adapting to climate change. What in all of this work gives you hope? I don't get too down about stuff because everything's changing all the time. So I try not to get attached to my ideas of what things should be like, you know, because there's a lot I can't control. I can really only control how I interact with my family and my relationships and the way I grow trees and what trees I choose to grow. So what gives me hope is just seeing how life wants to go on and growing trees that are probably going to do well under climate change scenarios. That gives me hope for sure. And just seeing that they want to keep growing. Like sometimes in the nursery, I, I get these trees that the roots go through a walnut shell. <laughs> they just keep going. I, I have no idea. Like I won't keep those trees to sell them, but just seeing what kind of torment a tree will take and they just keep growing. And I don't know, that, that gives me hope because you try to grow everything optimally, but then you end up with this thing that just grows fine. Yeah, that drive to survive is pretty strong, I guess. Yeah. That's a hopeful thing. That's all we have for you today, Jesse. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was a delight. That was Jesse Sandal, owner of Liberty Tree Nursery in Beaver Dam, New Brunswick. I'm Megan DeGraff. Thank you for listening to Below the Canopy, a podcast produced by Community Forests International. Audio engineering for this podcast was provided by Robin Edgar, and funding was provided by the Government of Canada. Stay tuned for our next episode, and to learn more about Community Forests International, please visit forestsinternational.org.